Welcome to the podcast. Today, we will be discussing competency to stand trial. Let's get legal. All right, today we'll be starting a new section of the Apple Review cases entitled Criminal Process Cases. We will discuss many interesting topics in this section, such as the insanity defense, psychiatry and the death penalty, hypnosis, among many other things. For this podcast, we will be discussing the cases under the first subsection, Competency to Stand Trial. Our first case today is Dusky v. U.S., Milton Dusky was 33 years old with a history of schizophrenia at the time of his arrest. He intermittently suffered from visual hallucinations, morbid preoccupations, and depression, and had a long-standing history of alcoholism. He was accused of kidnap and rape after he allegedly encountered a minor female along the road while he was traveling with two of his son's friends, forced her into his car, and attempted to rape her. He later stated that he did not remember the event. After his arrest, Mr. Dusky was admitted to the U.S. Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri, for an evaluation of his competency and sanity. He was evaluated by a staff physician who found that he was alert and oriented to person, place, and time, and was deemed competent to stand trial. He was found guilty and sentenced to 45 years in prison on a petition of writ of certiorari to the U.S. Supreme Court, Mr. Dusky requested his conviction be reversed, arguing that he was not competent to stand trial. After reviewing the evidence, the Supreme Court granted the writ and determined that to be competent to stand trial, a defendant must, be, must have a, quote, sufficient present ability to consult with his lawyer with a reasonable degree of rational understanding, unquote, and a, quote, rational as well as factual understanding of the proceedings against him, unquote. The court ruled that this, that the simple mental status exam, which found him to be alert and oriented, was insufficient. His case was remanded for retrial, at which time his sentence was reduced to 20 years. The Dusky Standard has become the benchmark for determining competency to stand trial in federal courts and in many state courts. The ruling has helped to ensure that defendants who are mentally ill are not subjected to unfair trials. Here's a summary of the key points of the ruling. Number one, a defendant is considered competent to stand trial if they have, quote, sufficient present ability to consult with his lawyer with a reasonable degree of rational understanding and a, quote, rational as well as factual understanding of the proceedings against him, unquote. Number two, the mere ability to stand understand the proceedings against oneself is not sufficient to establish competency, the defendant must also have the ability to consult with their lawyer and assist in their own defense. And finally, the determination of competency is a question of fact that must be decided on a case-by-case basis. Now, how to remember the ruling. To be dusky means to be dark, murky, obscured, It reminds me that if a patient only has a dusky understanding of their case and cannot adequately consult with their lawyer, they aren't competent to stand trial. Again, to be dusky means to be dark, murky, obscured. It uh, reminds me that if if a patient only has a dusky understanding of their case and cannot adequately consult with their lawyer, they aren't competent to stand trial. Our next case is Wilson v. U.S., 
In October of 1964, Robert Wilson and an accomplice held up a man in Washington, D.C. and stole his car. They took the car to a local pharmacy and held it up as well and escaped with over $400 in cash and three bottles of the drug Desputol. Police later identified the car driving on Connecticut Avenue and pursued it on a high-speed chase. During the ensuing high-speed chase, the suspect's stolen car missed a curve, ran off the road, and crashed into a tree. Wilson's accomplice died, uh, <coughs> Wilson's accomplice died immediately, and Mr. Wilson was rendered unconscious. He was found to have multiple school fractures and an intracranial hemorrhage. He woke up three weeks later in the hospital and had partial paralysis, a speech defect, and most importantly, permanent retrograde amnesia. He had no recollection of the alleged robberies. Once medically cleared, he was committed to St. Elizabeth's Hospital and underwent a competency evaluation to stand trial. Due to his amnesia, the physicians evaluating Mr. Wilson found him incompetent to stand trial and was committed to St. Elizabeth's Hospital for a 14-month term. In November of 1966, the patient was re-evaluated and found competent to stand trial and was eventually convicted. Mr. Wilson appealed and argued that it is a, quote, denial of due process and or of the right to effective assistance of counsel to try a defendant suffering from such a loss of memory, unquote. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals heard the case and ruled that amnesia of the event does not automatically rule someone incompetent per se, but that a case-by-case determination had to be made. The court stated that six factors must be considered in these cases. They include the following. Number one, the extent to which the amnesia affected the defendant's ability to consult with and assist his lawyer. Number two, the extent to which amnesia affected the defendant's ability to testify in his own behalf. Number three, the extent to which the evidence in suit could be extrinsically reconstructed in view of the defendant's amnesia. Such evidence would include evidence related to the crime itself as well as any reasonably possible alibi. Number four, the extent to which the government assisted the defendant and his counsel in that reconstruction. Number five, this, number five the strength of the prosecution's case. Most importantly here will be whether the government's case is such as to negate all reasonable hypothesis of innocence. If there is uh, any substantial possibility that the accused could, uh, but for his amnesia, establish an alibi or other defense, it should be presumed that he would have been able to do so. And finally, number six, any other facts and circumstances which would indicate whether or not the defendant had a fair trial. After all the facts relevant to the fairness of the trial, considering the amnesia, the court will then make a judgment whether, under applicable principles of due process, the uh, conviction should stand. The Wilson v. U.S. ruling has had a significant impact on the law of competency to stand trial. The court's decision required courts to conduct a careful and individualized assessment of a defendant's amnesia to determine whether they are competent to stand trial. The court's decision in emphasizes the importance of assessing a defendant's overall mental capacity rather than focusing solely on their ability to recall specific events. Here's a summary of the key points of the ruling. Number one, amnesia of the defense does not automatically deem a defendant incompetent to stand trial.
And number two, a competency ruling must be made on a case-by-case basis, considering six important factors, which we discussed. Now, how to remember the ruling. In Wilson's disease, which is caused by an accumulation of copper in many organs, including the brain, memory impairment is common. I remember Wilson's disease, dementia, copper, competency. Again, in Wilson's disease, uh, which is caused by the accumulation of copper in many organs, including the brain, memory impairment is common. I remember Wilson's disease, dementia, copper, competency. Our next case is Jackson v. Indiana. Theon Jackson was deaf and mute and had limited ability to communicate with others. Mr. Jackson was charged with two counts of robbery after trying to steal multiple purses. Evaluating doctors held that Mr. Jackson locked the intelligence or lacked the intelligence to adequately understand the nature of the charges against him and stated that he was not competent to stand trial. They also stated that his prognosis for restoration of competency was rather dim, even if he were not mute or deaf. Mr. Jackson was committed to a psychiatric hospital for treatment. It was common practice at the time that if a defendant was found incompetent to stand trial, the criminal proceedings against them were suspended. If the charges were petty in nature, they were often dropped or a plea bargain was made. Otherwise, the defendant was typically committed to a psychiatric hospital for treatment until the defendant was restored to competency and then stand trial. As there was little hope for Mr. Jackson to be restored to competency, he and his counsel argued that he was given a life sentence even though he had not been convicted of a crime. They claimed that he had been denied equal protection as well as depriving him of due process under the 14th Amendment and subjected him to a cruel and unusual punishment under the 8th Amendment. The the Supreme Court of Indiana affirmed the findings of the lower court and a rehearing was denied. The U.S. Supreme Court eventually granted certiorari. The Supreme Court of the United States reversed the decision of the lower courts. It held that the state of Indiana cannot constitutionally commit a criminal defendant for an indefinite period of time on the grounds that uh, that they are incompetent to stand trial. They stated this violates the due process clause of the Constitution. They also stated that, quote, such a defendant cannot be held more than the reasonable period of time necessary to determine whether there is a substantial probability that he will attain competency in the foreseeable future. If it is determined that he will not, the state must either institute civil proceedings applicable to the commitment of those not charged with the crime or release the defendant, unquote basically stating that he would need to be civilly committed if the state was going to continue to confine Mr. Jackson as there was little to no hope competency could be restored for trial and that in order to do so, he would need to meet the Indiana state guidelines for civil commitment, such as being a danger to himself or others. The Jackson v. Indiana ruling has had a significant impact on the law of involuntary commitment of criminal defendants. The court's decision has helped to protect the rights of criminal defendants who are incompetent to stand trial and has limited the state's ability to indefinitely confine them. Here's a summary of the key points of the ruling. Number one, a state cannot deprive an individual of their liberty without a legitimate state interest. 
Number two, the state's interest in providing treatment for mental illness does not justify the indefinite detention of an individual who is incompetent to stand trial. And finally, if there is little to no hope of restoring competency to stand trial, the state must either release the defendant or institute civil proceedings for commitment per state guidelines. Now, how to remember the ruling. I remember that if there is no hope for restoration, the state can't do jack Jackson, if the defendant is incompetent, Indiana, except for civilly committing the patient. Again, I remember that if there's no hope for restoration, the state can't do Jack Jackson if the defendant is incompetent, Indiana, except for civilly committing the patient. Our next case is Riggins v. Nevada, or Riggins v. Nevada, if you're not from Nevada. In November of 1987, David Riggins was charged with murder after going into the apartment of an acquaintance and stabbing him repeatedly to death. He was arrested and reported to the staff psychiatrist that he was hearing voices and requested medication. He was given Melaril, as he had taken in the past, in gradually increasing doses as he did not see immediate relief. The patient, the patient was eventually found competent to stand trial. Mr. Riggins and his defense team stated that he wanted to present an insanity case and requested that the Melaril be discontinued during the trial so that the jury could see his mental state firsthand, arguing that the medication would result in a skewed perception of his true disease state. The court denied his request to stop the medication and required uh, to continue taking it. He was tried and found guilty of murder and sentenced to death. Mr. Riggins appealed to the Nevada Supreme Court, arguing that forced administration of Melaril violated due process and that it was not justified. The Nevada Supreme Court upheld the conviction and sentence. Riggins then appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court reversed the decision of the lower court, stating that the forced medication violated his rights under the 6th and 14th Amendments. They ruled that the state did not show the medication was medically appropriate and did not demonstrate that they considered less intrusive means than forcing the medication. They cited the ruling in Washington v. Harper that prisoners have the right to refuse medications and that the state must prove a compelling interest without a least restrictive alternative to forcibly administering medications. This case raised an, inter an interesting question that the court did not address, can medications be forced for the purpose of maintaining competency to stand trial? Here's a summary of the key points of the ruling. Number one, an individual has a fundamental, a fundamental right to liberty, including the right to make decisions about their own medical care. Number two, the state can only infringe upon an individual's liberty if the state has a compelling reason to do so. And finally, the state's interest in proving treat, or providing treatment for mental illness does not justify the forced administration of antipsychotic medication if the medication is not necessary or if the patient is not dangerous. Now, how to remember the ruling. I remember that prisoners have the right, right, Riggins, to say no, no, Nevada, to medications if they're not dangerous. Again, I remember that prisoners have the right, Riggins, to say no, Nevada, to medications if they're not dangerous. Our next case is Godinez v. Moran. In August of 1984, Richard Allen Moran went into the Red Pearl Saloon in Carson City, Nevada, 
and shot and killed the bartender and a customer in an apparent robbery before fleeing. He then shot and killed his wife nine days later and cut his wrist in an unsuccessful suicide attempt. He went to the hospital and confessed to the crimes to police while in the hospital. He was evaluated by staff psychiatrists and found to be competent to stand trial, although was noted to have depression. He was charged with three counts of first-degree murder, but pleaded not guilty. Two months later, Mr. Moran uh, changed his mind and decided to dismiss his legal counsel and enter guilty pleas. This was accepted by the courts, and he was sentenced to death. Two years after his sentencing, he sought post-conviction relief, stating that he was mentally incompetent to represent himself. An evidentiary hearing was held, and the trial court rejected his claim. The Nevada Supreme Court also rejected his appeal. A federal district court denied his petition for a writ of habeas corpus. The Ninth Circuit Court eventually reversed that decision, stating that a competency hearing should have been held prior to accepting his decisions to waive his counsel and entering his guilty pleas. They stated that competency to waive constitutional rights require a higher level of mental functioning than the level required to be competent to stand trial. The U.S. Supreme Court then reversed this decision and ruled that competency to stand trial and competency to plead guilty were equivalent competencies. The court held that it was irrelevant if the individual represented himself inadequately. Moran was executed by lethal injection on March 30, 1996. Here's a summary of the key points of the ruling. Number one, a defendant does not need a higher level of competency to waive their right to counsel and plead guilty than they do to stand trial. And number two, the same standard applies in both situations. The defendant must have a rational and factual understanding of the proceedings and be able uh, and be capable of assisting their counsel. Now, how to remember the ruling. I remember that GOMO, Godinez v. Moran, ruled that you need no mo, or no more, mental functioning to be able to waive constitutional rights than you need to be competent to stand trial. Again, I remember that GOMO, Godinez v. Moran, ruled that you need no mo, or no more, mental functioning to be able to waive constitutional rights than you need to be competent to stand trial. Our next case is Cooper v. Oklahoma. In 1989, Brian Keith Cooper was charged with murder after he allegedly broke into the home of an 86-year-old man for the purpose of burglary, but ended up killing him in the process. Before and during his trial, the question of his competency was raised a total of five times. According to his attorney, Mr. Cooper's behavior was odd and that he was refusing to work with his attorney. His behaviors included refusing to change his prison clothes because regular clothes, quote, burned him, unquote, talking to himself in the fetal position, and refusing to even get close to his attorney due to fear. The defense attorney stated that once during the trial, he moved slightly towards Mr. Cooper, to which Mr. Cooper, quote, fell to get away from me. He hit his head, the thud on the marble, when he jackknifed backward off that railing into the marble, could be heard at the back of the courtroom, unquote. Mr. Cooper's competency was evaluated multiple times, and state psychologists had differing opinions on his competency. The judge eventually ruled, quote, I don't believe he has carried the burden by clear and convincing evidence of his incompetency, and I'm going to say we're going to go to trial, unquote. 
The defense attorney pleaded for a mistrial or further evaluation into Cooper's competence, but the court denied his motion. Mr. Cooper was convicted and received the death penalty. Mr. Cooper appealed, and the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals affirmed the conviction and sentence, stating that the statutory requirement that incompetence be established by clear and convincing evidence did not violate his due process. Mr. Cooper then appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court reversed an appeal on appeal, stating that the, quote, clear and convincing evidence, unquote, standard was too high for a defendant to demonstrate the need for a competency evaluation. They stated that the standard increased the possibility of error to a level, quote, incompatible with the dictates of due process, unquote. They ruled that criminal defenses or that criminal defendants must be allowed to avoid trial if they prove incompetence by a preponderance of the evidence. The Cooper v. Oklahoma ruling has had a significant impact on the law of competence to stand trial. The court's decision have, has led to a number of states lowering their burden of proof for determining competence to a preponderance of the evidence. Here's a summary of the key points of the ruling. Number one, the standard of clear and convincing evidence is too high to demonstrate incapacity to stand trial. Number two, the state must prove by a preponderance of the evidence that a defendant is competent to stand trial. Now how to remember the ruling. I remember the standard of clear and convincing evidence of incompetence is not okay, okay, Oklahoma, to coop, Cooper, someone up in jail. Again, I remember the standard of clear and convincing evidence of, <clears throat> of incompetence is not okay, Oklahoma, to coop, Cooper, someone up in jail. You can remember the clear and convincing by Cooper starting with a C. Our last case today is Indiana v. Edwards. Ahmed Edwards is a man living in Indiana who suffers from schizophrenia. In 1999, he attempted to steal a pair of shoes from a Parisian department store. He was caught in the act and, after being discovered, fired a gun at the store security guard and injured an innocent bystander. He was arrested and charged with attempted murder, battery with a deadly weapon, criminal recklessness, and theft. Mr. Edwards was deemed incompetent to stand trial in 2000, but was later restored to competency. As trial preparations began, another competency evaluation was requested by his lawyers, and in 2003, he was again found not competent to stand trial and committed to the state hospital. Months later, he was again restored to competency, and trial preparations began. In June 2005, Edwards asked to represent himself and asked for a continuance. The judge denied this request, and Mr. Edwards proceeded to trial with counsel. He was convicted of criminal recklessness and theft, but the jury could not reach a verdict in regards to the attempted murder and battery charges. Edwards again asked to represent himself before the second trial on the attempted murder and battery charges. The judge again denied this request, referring to Mr. Edwards' history of mental illness. He was eventually convicted on the attempted murder and battery charges. Mr. Edwards appealed to the Indiana Court of Appeals, stating that his constitutional right for self-representation was violated. The court agreed with Mr. Edwards and ordered a new trial. The state of Indiana then appealed to the Indiana Supreme Court, which also agreed with Mr. Edwards. 
the state of Indiana asked the U.S. Supreme Court to review the decision. The U.S. Supreme Court referenced two, case which, two cases which we have actually already discussed, namely Dusky v. U.S. and Godinez v. Moran. The court ruled that Dusky only applied to those with counsel and that Godinez only referred to waiving uh, the right to counsel and not necessarily the ability to act as your own counsel. They ruled that the standard for competency to stand trial was not necessarily the same as the standard to determine competency for defendants to represent themselves. Therefore, they determined that a state can deny a defendant the right to self-representation if they believe a defendant is in, uh, incapable of defending themselves, even if they are found competent to stand trial. This is a very important and consequence, consequential decision, especially considering it is somewhat of a dissension from the Godinez ruling that stated a defendant does not need a higher level of competency to, rave their, to waive their rights to counsel and plead guilty than they do to stand trial. This ruling leads to implications that a separate evaluation may be needed to determine if a defendant is competent to represent themselves after they have been found uh, competent to stand trial. Here is a summary of the key points of the ruling. Number one, competency to stand trial, basic understanding of proceedings, does not equal uh, competency to represent oneself, which is conducting defense and making legal decisions. And number two, states can balance self-representation rights with protecting defendants from harm due to mental illness. Now how to remember the ruling. I remember that Indiana Jones liked to do things himself, even if it was to his detriment. I remember that Indiana v. Edwards ruled that states can restrict defendants from doing this, even if they are competent to stand trial. Again, I remember Indiana Jones liked to do things himself, even if it was to his uh, detriment, and that Indiana v. Edwards ruled that states can restrict defendants from doing things themselves or representing themselves, even if they are competent to stand trial. All right, so we've gone over uh, many cases today. Let's just quickly review the mnemonics. The first case, Dusky v. U.S., to be dusky means to be dark, murky, murky or obscured. It reminds me if, it, if a patient only has a dusky understanding of their case and cannot adequately consult with their lawyer, they are not competent to stand trial. Next, Wilson v. U.S. Uh, again, remember Wilson's disease. That's uh, caused by an accumulation of copper in the brain and many other organs. Uh, in Wilson's disease, me uh, memory impairment is common. I remember Wilson's disease, dementia, copper, competency. Next, Jackson v. Indiana. Uh, I remember that if there's no hope for restoration, the state can't do Jack, Jackson, if the defendant is incompetent, Indiana, except for civilly committing the patient. Next, Riggins v. Nevada. I remember that prisoners have a right, or Riggins, to say no, Nevada, to medications if they're not dangerous. Again, right, Riggins, no, Nevada. Next, Godinez v. Moran. I remember that GOMO, Godinez v. Moran, ruled that you need no mo, no more mental functioning, to be able to waive constitutional rights than you need to be competent to stand trial. Next, Cooper v. Oklahoma. I remember the standard of clear and convincing evidence of incompetence is not okay, Oklahoma, to coop, cooper someone up in jail. 
Again, the standard of clear and convincing evidence of incompetence is not okay, Oklahoma, to coop Cooper someone up in jail. And you can remember clear and convincing by Cooper starting with a C. And next, Indiana v. Edwards. Uh, this is the last one. Remember that Indiana Jones liked to do things himself, even if it was to his detriment. I remember that Indiana v. Edwards ruled that states can restrict defendants from doing this, uh, like representing themselves to their own detriment, even if they're competent to stand trial. All right, that's a wrap on episode five on competency to stand trial. I hope you enjoyed it. Please leave a review and be sure to subscribe to be notified the next time an episode is released. Cheers. Cheers.